This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Neonatology Review Podcast. Daphna, good morning. Good morning. We're plugging <laughs> along. You know, one of the things um, we, we started doing this week is talking about test-taking strategies. Yeah. Do you have a favorite test-taking strategy? Don't panic. Don't panic. That's such a good one. That's such a good one. Sometimes, even if you're well-prepared, you're just sitting in there and you just start to catastrophize, right? Yes. You get to a question and you're like, I don't even, some of these words don't even sound familiar, right? right. And I mean, I think that's such a really good. Um, I, I often panic because I, I will. That surprises a, me about you. I mean, mentally, yeah, no, I mean, that's, I mean, because you, you get to the test and you do a question and you're like, I don't know this question. Right. And you're like, okay. So my instinct is usually skip, skip it, come back uh -huh. to it. Don't uh -huh. waste too much time. If right. you're, I mean, you could guess, but whatever. And then the problem is then if the follow-up question you go to is not something, you know, then you're like, oh shit. Like, all right. Like, it has this domino effect. Yeah. The floor is, is falling from underneath me. And now I'm like, oh my God, like, that's it. I don't know anything, but that's what I'm saying. Like, most likely, don't panic. Most likely, you'll get that second question. Maybe you just, right? And even if you don't, like, just... just... That's, the, that's the difference between me and you. I assume that they're going to ask me something that I don't know on the test. Right. So, <laughs> so I'm, not so I'm not so worried when there's something that I don't know. And, and, and I'm a thorough reviewer. So, like, yeah. I'm, 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 going back, I'm going back and saying, listen, I've read everything they told me to read. So, technically, I should have come across this information. And then... Maybe I didn't. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's going to be. But then I try to say, okay, I should be knowing this, and I'm going to try to answer it to the best of my ability, and I should be okay. And and I, because otherwise you go like, I don't know, skip, and then you start skipping three questions, and then you're like, oh boy, what's happening? And then you're like, you're seeing the whole movie unfold. Like I'm going to fail. And blah, blah, blah. but I will I will say, yeah, I think if you did a really thorough review, almost every, I mean, every question will be familiar but they i i did have some questions that i thought were not that were not covered in you know our review material yeah but you can't you can't let that sort of that's what i'm saying you can't that's what let I'm that saying. Yeah, you yeah, can't yeah, let yeah, that right. seep in because right. it's like well if then that they just ask me stuff about what i don't know then i might as well just like close the computer and go home because i'm going to get uh, zero but <laughs> So you, I always assume oh, I should so know. Dramatic. No, but what I'm saying is that it's stressful because you're like, well, I reviewed all these things and yet here I am at the test and I don't know the thing. What is what is happening? And then the last the last thing I would say is um, look for don't don't let yourself be worked up also when it comes to diagnoses. I remember <clears throat> on the test, I was faced with like an image, an X-ray, and I was like, it could either be this very common diagnosis or it could be this super rare diagnosis. And it's like. Just go with common stuff. Like most likely it's always like they're they're wanting to make sure you know your things well, like the, the common things well. So sometimes, you know, you could always sort of rationalize like a super weird clinical picture. And you're like, well, but if the patient had X or Y, this could potentially be this super rare disease. And you're like, maybe just go with like, I don't know, if it's NEC, just, just pick NEC. <laughs> you're muted, Daphne. 
Yeah, it's not usually that's not usually the answer, right? Yeah, exactly. It's not usually the answer. Because because you you you're so hyper and you're like and you think about all the different things and yeah, well, but if this is a metabolic syndrome, this could potentially be the presentation yeah. of this. And it's like, dude, if it like smells like neck, screams like neck, it just yeah, pick neck. Don't worry idea. about it. It will be right. okay. Um, yeah. My big tip since we're we're early, right? We're we're in yeah. January. We're more than a year away from the next uh, cycle. Is really to plan out your study plan and to to make a study plan that accounts for things taking longer than you expect them to, and for um, you know just having a day where you're like, I need to take a day off. I'm exhausted. So I, I think making a longer study plan than you anticipate, I think, is. Uh, important and it's, right. it's not too early to start making that plan i agree with that i i think if you uh we have this we have this uh this 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 sign in our call uh-huh. room That's which right. i'm which i'm recording from i'm post call today i'm not recording when i'm on service i just want to make that clear but um and it's like you could do nothing at all which doesn't move you along but you could make small consistent efforts and what it shows is like the math of like if you have one to the power 365 versus 1.01 to the power 365 well one to the power 365 is one you've not made progress but if you've done 0.01 then it's like 37.7 and i just love that little sign to be honest with you i think it just shows like if you if you just like you're not planning on if you studying. just listen to the podcast, frankly. Yeah, yeah. I think. some days I was not I was not going to be able to study, but I was like, let me just like learn one fact. Like, let me just make that yeah. day. So I was like, on that day, I rem- I learned this fact. It's so helpful. It is so helpful. Just yeah, or just yeah. say I'll do a few three questions. You know, just to or even just one, even yeah. just one, right. uh, yeah. just one, one question a day. And by the way, if you're a first year fellow and you are listening to this podcast, the best advice I got from one of my senior residents in pediatrics. And I feel so bad. I don't remember his name. He's a pizza idea attending. He said, Ben, you want to be a rock star? One question a day. Just do one yeah. question a day. And, and you're like, well, I could do more. It's like, well, no, just do one. And if you do one question a day for six years of training, you will know your shit. Like I yeah, can guarantee. And that was such a good advice because I could do one question before sign out. I could do one question after sign out. There's always time to do one question and you always learn something. So, I mean, I was barely, I was barely making it. So I'm not sure, but I, had I created the habit, I think I could have made it work. Yeah. But you, you think about it habit. and it's like, it's like, um, it's, it's, and actually it's, it's something to fun to do as a group, right? So when I was on rotations where we said as a group, let's just do one question. Yeah. We were, were much more successful. Um, Agreed. Agreed. Sure. But I mean, it's, um, it's don't let ambition be the enemy of success, right? It's 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 this thing where it's like, well, I could do more. Like, don't don't be so ambitious. Just do one question. Like, just do just, one question. Just do one question, and then after one month, you will have done thirty questions. And mm-hmm. the person who said I could do ten probably will have done ten one day and not mm-hmm. done any other. So like, and that's that's exactly me. So I would, I I yeah. anyway. All right, we're digress. We're supposed to talk about the neonatal effects. Yeah. Okay. okay so the neonatal effects of growth restriction. So the first one is depressed immune system. And basically they have a decreased lymphocyte number, decreased lymphocyte function, and decreased immunoglobulin levels. And uh, we do see that on the initial CBCs of these infants. But what's very striking is that this depressed immune system can persist much later in life. 
And so that is something that I did not realize. You may think, oh, you know, once they get out, they get they get they get to grow, and they no. This is a this is a feature that is something uh, that could persist longer in life. Again, great great little piece of of trivia for a question. They can have either hyper or hypoglycemia. Hyperglycemia because they have low amount of insulin. They have an increased secretion of catecholamine and this. Uh, increased uh, sensitivity and thus hyperglycemia is usually very easily corrected. They could have hypoglycemia due to decreased glycogen stores, decreased gluconeogenesis, so the production of newly formed uh, uh, glucose, and they have increased sensitivity to insulin. And so this is especially seen in the first three days after birth. This is something that I feel like I've seen hundreds of times and uh, it's optimal to initiate feeding or IV glucose early, which is basically your typical management of hypoglycemia in a newborn. They could have hypocalcemia, and that could be explained by the fact that because they have decreased vascular supply in utero, they just get to receive less of that calcium from their mother. And so they're um, at an increased risk for a difficult uh, delivery. The, uh, they, could, they could have hypothermia because of uh, poor growth. They could have decreased subcutaneous fat. They have a large surface area to body weight ratio, and uh, they will have a very narrow temperature range. They could have perinatal depression. We talked about that. Uterine contractions can increase hypoxemic stress further if we have in utero placental insufficiency. And we've talked about that a little bit when we talked about monitoring of fetal status. We talked about contraction stress test, and we talked about how uh, patients with utero placental insufficiency, you, you give them, simu you simulate contractions, and you can see that the hypoxia can get worse, and then that may lead you to know you should revert to C-section. Well, it's the same thing here. If you have utero placental insufficiency and a patient goes into labor, then you will have a greater risk of perinatal depression. This leads, obviously, to a greater risk of delivery by C-section and a greater risk for potentially needing neonatal resuscitation. The last uh, piece of uh, neonatal effect that we wanted to mention was polycythemia. And that's almost like for the people, I mean, my wife is an adult cardiologist, so it's almost like COPD in, in adults, right? So this chronic hypoxemia in utero leads to an increased erythropoietin production. And so then that's why you could see this uh, polycythemia. Because they have chronic hypoxemia, they compensate by just increasing the, the, the blood products that are being produced so that you have more red blood cells and more ability to carry whatever oxygen you have available. Half of all SGA full-term infants have a hematocrit of 60% or more. And this may exacerbate hypoglycemia. Other, uh, other risk factors for these babies, they are at an increased risk of meconium aspiration syndrome. That should make sense. Any type of, they're, they're at high risk of stress around the time of delivery. And we know that stress around the time of delivery can lead to passage of meconium and passage of meconium can lead to meconium aspiration. They're at risk of gastrointestinal perforation due to focal bowel ischemia. If blood flow to the bowel is, is, uh, is shunted away, that could explain uh, an, an in utero perforation. They are at risk of acute renal failure. They are at risk of persistent pulmonary hypertension due to prolonged in utero hypoxemia. On exam, we've talked a lot about the features that you could see on babies that are growth restricted. You could see decreased subcutaneous fat, rough, dry skin, 
you could see skin that desquamates easily because of decreased vernix production. You can often see increased anterior fontanelle due to decreased membranous bone formation. Uh, female genitalia may appear less mature due to decreased fat tissue covering the labia, and often they could have a ruddy appearance. Um, okay, how do we manage uh, pregnant patients with babies who are not growing appropriately? So as we said, one of the big potential risk factors is poor maternal nutrition. So that's an easy fix. You could improve maternal nutrition and manage maternal chronic illness. All these diseases that we talked about, diabetes and so on, could be opt could be uh, could be controlled a little bit um, a bit better. And if you control their disease better, maybe this will have a positive impact on fetal growth. You want to do serial ultrasounds to assess growth rate and to make sure that you're keeping good track of the growth of the baby. You could consider low dose aspirin in women with preeclampsia in order to decrease the chances of IUGR. We talked about that and we said that on, I think, well, maybe it was Tuesday, that the evidence for that was fair to good. You could, um, you could recommend bed rest if severe growth restriction, especially if it's secondary to utero placental insufficiency. If the fetus is in acute distress, you could place the women in left lateral recumbent position to increase uterine blood flow and also potentially even administer oxygen. So basically, left lateral recumbent position means that you're lying down on your left side and it avoids pre pressure on the vena cava and hopefully promotes uh, placental perfusion. And then if you have evidence of fetal distress, then the solution is just deliver, deliver the fetus. Um, what is the prognosis of growth restriction? Well, it really is dependent on why you're growth restricted. It's a little bit like prematurity, where the first question you should be asking is, why are we in the position we are in? Uh, it is also very important to find out how long the growth restriction has been happening and what is the severity. There is a significantly increased mortality for babies who are growth restricted. And I, I like they are at a very much increased risk of death increase five to 20 times in comparison to appropriately grown infants with the same gestational age. Five to 20 times increase in mortality. I want to emphasize this. The reason I'm not trying to be uh, a drama queen here and, and be like, oh, 20. But if the question were to say that infants who are growth restricted can have an increased risk of mortality up to 20 times, you may say, oh, that's, yeah. that's, that's yeah. ridiculous. That's way too high. But no. 5 to 20x compared to appropriately grown infants. Um, yeah, I was reading that and I was thinking if they had asked me that question, I would have said, oh, 20 times sounds kind of insane. But yeah, it is. But it's so real. It's so clinically relevant too, you know, in, in terms of counseling, uh, you know, the growth restricted infant. Um, it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah. How important that obviously that nutrition that those those uh, that blood flow during during growth is it's incredible. But yeah, I agree. I think the, I think you easily would have skimmed over that and said like twenty is like sounds a bizarre number, but yeah. it's, it makes a huge difference. Um, they have an increased risk of perinatal complication, and obviously they have a much higher risk of being of needing to be admitted to the NICU. They have also an increased risk of neurological abnormalities, especially 
if they have persistent microcephaly. Um, they are mentioning here in the neonatology review books that studies suggest that gestational age has a greater impact on the risk of CP uh, compared to IUGR. Uh, postnatal growth really depends on the severity of growth restriction at birth. And the last thing that is mentioned is that recent epidemiologic evidence suggests that adults have an increased risk of hypertension, glucose intolerance, and obesity. And that is very famously known as Barker's hypothesis, which if you want to read more about this, I think it's something that's fascinating where they basically looked at um, pregnancies during like the Dutch famine. And they saw that all these mothers who by, by default didn't really get to have proper nutrition because that was a famine. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> these babies were born growth restricted. When they followed these infants into adulthood, they found a lot more uh, evidence of metabolic syndromes. And there's lots of good articles on this online, or even in Fanroff and Martin, they have a good, a good chapter on that if you're interested. It may, found, may, may seem counterintuitive that open Fanroff and Martin to read like some historical article, but it made me feel good that I was not reading something about like pulmonary physiology when I was reading that. Anyway, do you have, do you have a question for us today? Oh, I do. Let's do it. Um, the question, sorry, is number 75. Okay. Okay. It's actually neurology question 75. Ooh. A female, oh, you what didn't you, see you that coming. What are you trying to pull you? here? Huh? That's right. That's right. A female infant is born at 26 weeks gestation to a mother with preeclampsia. The pregnancy had been complicated by severe intrauterine growth restriction, IUGR, with absent end diastolic blood flow in the umbilical artery. The baby is vigorous in the delivery room and initial respiratory distress responds well to CPAP. There's a clinically significant PDA, which closes after a course of indocin. Apnea responds well to caffeine, which is discontinued at 36 weeks postmenstrual age. After three months stay in the NICU, the infant is discharged on fortified feedings. Which neurodevelopmental sequelae is most likely associated with IUGR instead of prematurity? <coughs> That was not a choice, right? That one's not coffee. That's <laughs> not a choice. <sighs> okay, the answers are A, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, B, behavioral difficulties, C, decreased full-scale IQ only, D, decreased verbal IQ only, or E, decreased full-scale and verbal IQ. Okay. Can you repeat the question one more time? Mm, yes. The question overall is which neurodevelopmental sequelae is most likely associated with uh, intrauterine growth restriction instead of prematurity? Uh, I have this, this muscle memory that I remember this question and I think it was behavioral. So that's a, that's a great muscle that's a great knee-jerk answer because but actually adhd it's is very much associated ADHD. with prematurity ah. so that's not the right answer <clears throat> you did get the right answer the first go around because i have your book here so i know what you got right i know what you got wrong but um so it's it's e decreased full scale and verbal iq many studies have compared preterm infants with growth restriction compared to appropriately grown preterm infants and have found that preterm infants with intrauterine growth restriction had lower full scale and verbal IQ scores than control infants. Both preterm infants with and without intrauterine growth restriction have similarly higher rates of behavioral difficulties than term infants, indicating 
that intrauterine growth restriction is not an additional risk factor for those outcomes. All right. You can't get them all right. No, that's true. <laughs> I feel bad because I was like, I remember something. I like this question sounds familiar. I think I remember this being behavioral. I didn't even process, to be honest with you. Like I said, I'm postcard. I was like, I think I remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Excuses, excuses. Excuses, excuses. Everybody okay. has them. Anyway. <laughs> What is it? An ER attending once told me excuses. It's like butts. Everybody has everybody them has and, one. and they all stink. I <laughs> <laughs> was, like, was such an ER <laughs> comment. Anyway, all right, I'll see you tomorrow. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.